Hello and welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. This is JM and Nate here again, and this is the second of a two-part series recorded on the same day that we decided to release separately. The previous episode was on David Lindsay's A Voyage to Arcturus, and this one will be on C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. Now, we do recommend that you listen to the previous episode if you have read the book, because we are going to be discussing, comparing the works a little bit. Clive Staples Lewis is certainly one of the most well-known English writers of the mid-slash-early 20th century. He was called one of the most well-read men of his generation. He was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898 to essentially a dynasty of priests and clergy. His maternal side, the men in the family going back several generations, were ministers. And his paternal side also had some church influences in the family. These, of course, were Protestant Irishmen, and he was the youngest of two children, his older brother Warren being close to him almost to the end, pretty much. But as well as writing theological papers arguing for the salvation of all, unlike his bigot maternal grandfather, his paternal grandfather had this amusing way of writing little sort of juvenile science fiction stories to amuse the children. So perhaps this was an influence on Lewis later in life. But C.S. Lewis is known most notably as a Christian apologist, somebody who wrote extensively about both medieval and Renaissance literature. And in fact, he was a professor at Cambridge for many years. Although he was brought up in Oxford, that's where he attained his degrees. And that's also where he met his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who he also remained close to through most of his life from the late 20s onward. Now, his mother died when he was quite young, and this ended what he termed the most idyllic, imaginative period in his life, which was his childhood. He had some some unusual thoughts, I guess, and, and very, very sort of structured ways of, of seeing life in its various stages and progressions. He differentiated between boyhood and childhood, and to him, his childhood came before his boyhood, and his boyhood came after his mother died when he went off to boarding school and spent years moving from school to school. He started out at the same school where his brother was already learning, but the headmaster of this school was extremely tyrannical, and in fact, his experience there was so terrible and so strange, he left early, and two years after he had left, that school was closed down, and the headmaster of the school was declared insane and institutionalized. So, yeah, even even for early 1900s Britain... It's pretty like, scandalous. It's, it's pretty scandalous, yeah, but also the terrible nature of the British boarding school institution is something that's well documented, but usually it's just kind of like, oh, it's just something that boys go through. But this apparently right. was too strange and extreme even for the authorities at the time. Yeah. His family nicknamed him Jack, and so for some reason nobody ever uses the word Clive. It's always C.S. or Jack. He apparently even signed his own stuff, C.S., so in all the biographies, they never use his first name. It's sort of funny at times, I think. Of course, he's also very well known for the Chronicles of Narnia, which he wrote in the 1940s. So it actually follows the Space Trilogy, which we're going to be talking about more 
today. Yeah, I still haven't read any of the Narnia books or seen uh, what they made one or two films. I know they tried making a few live yeah. action films after the success of Lord of the Rings and the They did. They uh, didn't really work was, out, I don't think. Well, it is a strange story. The the first film was quite good, apparently. I haven't watched them either, but I didn't read all the books when I was a kid. But the first film apparently did quite well. But for some reason, they didn't. They weren't fast enough. They didn't keep churning them out fast enough. And, and right, like, right. It just couldn't compete with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And yeah. the kids apparently got too old. And this was a Disney thing. And I guess they just weren't on the ball with it. They wanted to cash in. And they had a great opportunity in those books. No, for sure. I mean, those books have always been popular. They really are influential to so many children. And, like, yeah. they're the kind of books that adults still would sometimes read if they want to go back to that kind of thing. And and Lewis himself was very keen on this idea of recapturing the essence of, of childhood. And this was a very important thing to him. He was very much not a modernist. And it's kind of funny because his tastes in, like, contemporary literature of that time ran much more towards genre fiction and stuff like like H.G. Wells and his friend Charles Williams. And right. he liked the movie King Kong, but he didn't like <laughs> the dramatic like 30s movies because he thought yeah. they were cloyingly like fake sentimental and stuff like that. But he wanted, you know, he liked King Kong and he liked what he termed a bad fiction. But he, he was well read. He'd read Virginia Woolf and like James Joyce. But right. he didn't seem to really have much time for them. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in, like, the medieval Renaissance stuff. And that was where he looked for, like, true literature. But in terms of, like, his modern tastes were much more populist, I guess. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. But uh, he read a, a lot. And he kind of like H.G. Wells and some of the other writers we've talked about in our Chrononauts podcast. He was a person who definitely documented a lot of things. So unlike Lindsay... There is a lot that is known about oh, him. And, and so much is written about C.S. Lewis. I mean, when we were doing background research for this episode, I think we found a bibliography that was like 40 or 50 books long or something like that. Yeah. All oh, yeah. picking apart the various aspects of his life from the space trilogy to the Narnia stuff to the Christian apologetics. Like, yeah, he wrote an enormous amount and it's all all been studied many, many times before. The vast majority is nonfiction, though. The majority is, in fact, worth Uh, relating to theology and and medieval renaissance literature but also he had sort of more fictionalized i don't know if allegory is really the right word but like the screw tape letters which is kind of like a satirical work from the perspective of the devil I, i think that paradise lost is a very obvious influence just sort of talking about how he's trying to corrupt this man yeah. And it's written like from that perspective. So, I mean, it's humorous, right? But it's obviously on the Christian side of things. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. And yeah, the Narnia books, when I was younger and I read those, I certainly didn't pick up on the Christian allegory. That didn't even register to me. So it was actually a surprise later on when I started to read that that was a thing. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I never thought of Aslan as like the Christian God and so on. But that's a thing. So this sort of godlike being would be something that comes up in the space trilogy as well. So he might have got this from his friend Charles Williams, who was also a Christian and wrote sort of spiritual thrillers, I guess almost you could say. I read a couple of his books like many years ago, and I found them to be very good. And they are quite strange. Not science fiction, probably by any stretch, but certainly odd. Like there was this one, uh, The Place of the Lion, and that literally has a lion just showing up in the middle of 
some English city like London or something. And yeah. I think everybody thinks it escaped from a zoo, but ends up being some kind of like archetype of strength or something. And, and it's right. like, it's somehow linked in with godliness and stuff. And like, there's all these weird spiritual transformations that happen. And apparently this book affected Lewis greatly. And the two became friends because they just so happened to be reading each other's works, like at the same time. And Williams was reading one of Lewis's nonfiction works. I can't remember which, which it was now, but again, he just has so many by the time he graduated and went to university. So at this point, he was declaring himself an agnostic. And supposedly, meeting Tolkien sort of helped push him back in the direction of Christianity. And he and Tolkien and some of their other friends, they all called themselves the Inklings, and they were this group of Oxford people, and they liked to sit around and drink beer and discuss literature and stuff like that. And it sounds like a fun gathering of people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They didn't all agree on the same thing. Lewis and Tolkien had the Christianity in common, but like Tolkien was Catholic and Lewis was Protestant. So, but they got along very well. And at one point they were sitting around, this would have been in like 1936, I believe. And he said to his friend Tolkien, he said, Tollers, such an English uh, nickname, Tollers, Tollers, there's too little of what we really like in stories. I'm afraid we shall have to try and write some ourselves. From that discussion, they each determined to write an adventure story. Tolkien was to write a story about or dealing with time travel, and Lewis was to write a space travel journey. Now, the two writers had very different approaches to how to construct stories. As is well known, Tolkien was the sort of writer who was endlessly working on things and revising them and essentially never really finishing them. It was always a work in progress with him. And that wasn't like a negative thing. That's just how he went about things. But that's also why, besides Lord of the Rings, there are thousands and thousands of pages of just notes that have been collected and sort of formed into semi-coherent forms, not just in the Silmarillion, but in like the History of Middle-Earth volumes that were published by like uh, his son, I guess. So Tolkien had started this story called The Lost Road. It's notable for being the only fictional attempt by Tolkien to depict the 20th century in any way. He was just not into that. He wanted to do these make-believe lands and these these historical landscapes and stuff like that. But he never finished the story. That's just the way it was with Tolkien. He didn't write a lot of fiction. His main interest was philology and languages. And when he first met Lewis, he said that he had no great interest in literature. And Lewis and him got into several arguments about this. And Lewis had actually written in his diary... He seems harmless and probably just needs a smack or two. But Lewis, his approach was very much more easygoing about writing. And so Lewis just sat down and cranked out Out of the Silent Planet very, very quickly. And uh, I believe it was rejected by the first two publishers, but it was eventually published by Bodley Head in 1938. And Lewis wrote this book and read it aloud to his friends, chapter by chapter. So you can just imagine the atmosphere. And this this is something they did very often, apparently. Just sitting around, maybe a table somewhere, probably drinking pints of ale, and Clive sort of reading this thing aloud, which apparently he was quite good at. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and it wasn't just these. It was some of his other nonfiction works, too, that he was fond of doing this with. And so there was actually some speculation sometimes whether things that he wrote are actually things that he meant or whether he just did that sort of 
to play around with his friends. Like, at times, his theological points seem, like, maybe extreme and unfair, and there's some debate as to whether... Did he actually, like, did he actually mean what he was saying? Because, like, there are certain contradictions in his theology. Like, at what point he seems to say that hell's not really a thing and that he kind of makes fun of the idea of hell. He's like, God is a landlord and you better not displease him. But then, like, he'll write another thing where he'll go all hellfire and brimstone and sort of people wonder, well, did he just do that because he was, like, orating in front of his friends and having a good time? Like, there's there's a certain amount of doubt about that, which I think is interesting. I mean... Lewis, I don't know. I mean, I know a little bit more about him now after having done this, but I don't know a ton about him. I do feel this conflict in my mind about him because like some of his some of his ideas do seem a bit regressive to me, like a little bit too much looking backward kind of thing. Right. But at the same time, like there does seem to be a real vein of humor and good naturedness most of the time. But then sometimes it doesn't come through like for the most part. That's there in the Narnia books. But then in the last book, you get some really weird stuff that kind of makes you feel like, I don't know, like even as an eight-year-old, not picking up on the Christian allegory, I still felt like kind of, oh, the ending is kind of, like there's some bitterness or something. Like there's some kind of, like a couple of the characters who you spent several books with, they're now like too old and grown up. Like they can't go to Narnia anymore. And they're all obsessed with like material things. And it's just like the way he writes off a couple of these characters, especially one of the female characters, it's not very nice. And, you know, you're just kind of like, I don't know, you know, I mean, you made me like this person and now you're now you're saying she's just this, like, materialistic woman obsessed with, like, clothes and fashion. And I don't know, it just, it, it made me feel not so good. But I think for the most part, his attitude seems quite positive. And as we'll see as we go through Out of the Silent Planet, there's definitely a slant of real anti-imperialism, which I think he borrows in part from Wells. Oh, yeah, he absolutely does. I mean, he mentions him by name several times. Oh, yeah, several times. And he is definitely a fan. Like, he mentions him in other letters and, and, and essays, too, quite frequently. But, I mean, he also said that because as he was going through schooling, even though he was an agnostic during a lot of that time, he also found, like, some of the atheistic thinkers like Wells and George Bernard Shaw and stuff, they weren't as satisfying to him. He felt there was something missing in their outlook. And I think that was, again, one of the things that drew him more towards spirituality and Christianity. In Out of the Silent Planet, we begin with a pedestrian named Ransom, who's hiking from Natterby to Sturk on a walking tour, which was pastime popular among gentlemen at that time. Yeah, it's a very English scene with the rainy weather and the turnip farms, and feels like you're in Withering Heights or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's more like, it's that, but it's cozy as well. Like yeah. It has, yeah, it has... And oh, I want to make a comment in a bit when we get to encounters with our two antagonists, but he's tired and he wants to rest somewhere. So he stops at this cottage. He wants to know if there's like an inn nearby where he can spend the night or something. And the woman who answers the door is all upset. She's wringing her hands about something. And apparently 
her son, who works at this farm, has not come home yet. The woman doesn't like the people on this farm. There's this weird professor guy, and there's also this person who's come from London, and she speaks very ominously about these people. But Ransom uh, decides to make his way there, and again, yeah, it's very English because he's like, oh, the weather's really bad. Maybe I can... Oh, how does he put it? He says, I can expect some hospitality. Like, yeah, right. It's not like, you know, I can ask them if I can stay the night. It's more like, oh, maybe they'll be good enough to do this for me because I'm I'm just yeah. a cool Englishman and all that. <laughs> Definitely a bit of class stuff in this first chapter here with oh, yeah. the yeah. lady and the son. Yeah, I, th- I think so. So Ransom makes his way there and he finds this boy, the son, struggling with these two men. And it turns out Ransom knows one of them from school. And this is Divine. And there's some dislike between the two. And Divine is a little sarcastic about the warmth of the greeting. His companion is Weston, a big, loud-voiced man, a physicist, apparently. He apparently has Einstein on toast and drinks a pint of Schrodinger's blood for breakfast. I guess that's how we know what kind of man he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not described in this way at all, but I just kept picturing the icon from the John Waters films, Divine, as the character. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't think of that at all. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, that that would have been funny to picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they kind of make up this half-assed thing about the boy having fits, and they're just kind of keeping him there till he's all right. It's, then they're going to send him home. But Ransom gets what he initially wanted. He's able to accept a room for the night. But he's also perplexed. He feels like he's stumbled on something criminal for some reason. But his British class sensibilities get in the way of his intuition. Right. And it actually reminded me of that TV show, The Avengers. Yeah. Like, very much so. Because in that show, and then that show is, like, very humorous. And it's, like, people compare it a lot to James Bond. But I think it's got a a pretty different character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, like, it's got a lot of that. The antagonist and John Steed or some guy who's, like, not the antagonist just sort of hanging out drinking and smoking cigars together even though they're like one guy's talking about how he wants to take over the world or the stock market or something right and it's just like they're just hanging out and drinking scotch or something and they're all very mannered but the avengers makes fun of that a lot like it kind of especially in the later seasons it pokes fun at at all those conventions in an interesting really fun way but the boy's like he's kind of denying that they were they had good intentions toward him and he's like they're going to send me to the laboratory and, and he doesn't want to go there anymore. But He's really upset about it. Yeah, he's really upset about it, but he does get to go home, so that's good for him. In fact, it seems to be Ransom's arrival that's made Divine in particular decide that they don't need this person anymore, this boy anymore. Ransom thinks about Divine and how he and certain of the other boys admired him for a while in school, but Ransom had realized pretty quickly how much of a bore he really was. And apparently he's a successful one, though, and it might be hard to figure out exactly why, but he gets ready to offer a drink to Ransom and inquires about Ransom's walking tour, which he kind of scoffs at, because I don't think he's a real fan of, like, physical labor for no purpose, or maybe any kind of labor, in fact. (laughs) He explains that he's there to put money into some of Weston's ventures, experiments, And he's very slow in getting Ransom to drink, which I thought was really funny. He's, like, sort of digging around. It's like he doesn't really want to offer him a drink because he's too, like, spendthrifty or something. But he eventually does. But what do you know? The drink is drugged. Ransom has a weird dream. 
and awakes to an unflattering discussion about him and the boy. It turns out that Weston is this like horrible utilitarian who believes in vivisection and stuff. They're talking about the boy and, and he pretty much says, well, in a like a proper scientific state, this like person like this would be sent to the laboratory for dissection. And <laughs> right. It's like they do experiments on somebody like that because the implication is that the boy is kind of feeble minded, I guess. And uh, uh, yeah. Not, yeah, not quite all there. So naturally, as you would, Ransom tries to escape, but he's bashed on the head and soon he's out again. And when he wakes up, he feels like he's on some kind of ship. At least that's what it seems to be. And Weston wanders in naked. And yes, the planet he sees is the moon. And they're flying far out into space. So we kind of have a situation similar a bit to Voyage to Arturus, where somebody's, I mean, Masco wasn't kidnapped against his will, but, you know, sort of sleeps his way through most of the journey and this journey takes a lot longer but the ship is also more spacious and comfortable right yeah the voyage to arcturus centennial that was done by the university of glasgow one of the panelists i forget which one said that c.s lewis ripped off the plot for this from arcturus which i think is being a little uncharitable yeah i don't think that's true they're they're a bit different in their construction but there are certain similarities in fact i think that the novel it bears the most similarity to, if you're going to call it a ripoff of anything, would be H.G. Wells' first win on the moon, which we'll see oh, yeah. direct comparisons to coming up quite shortly. Even the initial setup of Weston and Divine being these kind of scheming scientists that don't really care about any ethical issues at all. They just want to yeah. make money. I mean, money Divine is obviously kind of like the Bedford character. Yeah, in, right, exactly. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, Wells was a lot more sympathetic towards Cavour. Like, yes, absolutely. Wells... Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see Lewis's take on it is different than Wells's, is. And oh, yeah. he even comments on that in the text. So he says they're going to Malacandra. Weston does. Weston hangs out with Ransom for a little bit. And he says they're going to Malacandra, but he won't say what or where that is. He just says that it's in the solar system. And he's pretty rude and abrupt. And he doesn't encourage talking. So basically, it's a month of boredom. But... For some reason, Ransom is surprisingly not that troubled. Like, he, you know, he has periods of fear, but they're mostly related to his companions and what they're saying and doing and not to the journey itself. He decides to sort of pull his weight a bit and he cooks for them, mostly because he's not really fond of their cooking, so he just sort of takes charge of the kitchen. Through some interaction with his companions, he, he kind of figures, he realizes the Divine doesn't really care about science or the future of the species at all which is Weston's motivation. Divine just wants to conquer new lands, and he starts saying a bunch of crap about the white man's burden, which, again, was mentioned in Wells, but comes from Kipling, specifically. Yeah, right. Lewis is definitely very focused on the imperialistic, violent imperialistic angle yeah. of it. So, obviously, we have this like dedicated and heartless scientist, plus, yeah, the imperialist who's really hungry for gold and lucre and maybe slaves and stuff like that. Ransom's not allowed into the control room, but he otherwise can explore at liberty, and the ship seems to contain cargo holds, which would seem to back up this idea that they're hoping to get lots of loot from wherever they're going. Weston says that Ransom feels okay, and he feels pretty good because they're receiving rays from, I guess, from the sun that don't reach terrestrial atmosphere. Space seems much more like a womb of the worlds than a barren wasteland. Ransom even supposes space may be a blasphemous word for it, 
and the heavens, as it was called by older writers, was a much more appropriate name for it. He overhears a conversation, again, between Divine and Weston, and it becomes clear that he was picked as essentially some sort of sacrifice. At least that's what Divine thinks. And the two talk about the horridness of the natives, the Sorns, as they're called. And it's here that Ransom starts getting these first, in, first men in the moon vibes. And he decides that he has to escape when they get to Malacandra or die trying. As they approach the planet, the center of gravity changes and everything has to be moved and Ransom participates in the labor. Divine and Weston, yeah, I think they should really be nicer to him because he's like helping out a lot. And I don't know if it's again this English like need to be not agitated but it just (laughs) it was just a really weird thing because like throughout the book and i mean it's not a spoiler because we're getting to it but like weston and divine disappear like for the vast majority of it and then they come back and it's very antagonistic but then it's kind of not but it is again and it's like yeah this it's kind of weird thing where they all have to travel together and none of them like each other very much including Weston and Divine. Like, I don't even think they like each other very much. No, they, much. they definitely don't. And yeah. in a way, that is the biggest similarity, I think, with the construction of the Arcturus plot is Ransom's on his own through most of the novel in a similar fashion that Nightspore and Crag leave Mescal alone well, through the course of most of the novel. But we'll yes see no, what because, happens. Yeah, I mean, they're going to sacrifice him, but so they do land, and Ransom sleeps through it, which he does both times they land, which is kind of funny. He's like, just sort of wakes up and they're there. But Divine and Weston have already been to Malacandra, so, and they have a hut there by a lakeshore, which is right. their landing place. The gravity is light and the air is breathable, though it's a bit cold. And escape's difficult because... Now, Divine and Weston have guns. Ransom's not sure how he's going to go about this, but he does observe that Malacandra is beautiful, and he doesn't know why he would have thought otherwise, really. It is mentioned early on that Ransom is a very pious man, and that will certainly become significant later on. There's many tall, thin plants, and they have a meal, and suddenly these huge man-like shapes approach from the water, and the men force Ransom to the water, and... It's like they're going to give him up. This alien voice cries at them. But then suddenly this huge beast appears and Weston shoots at it. And during the chaos, because this beast has come out of the water and it it appears to have like upset everyone, including the Sorns. And Ransom gets free and he starts running for his life away from the water. And he wanders for quite some time and he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know at this point where Malacandra is. The woods are noisy and dark, and he's hungry and thirsty. He experiences this strange duality within himself, like there's someone with him looking after him. And Ransom sort of says to hell with it, and he decides to drink the water. It's not bad. It's quite refreshing, in fact. And he cuts a piece off one of the soft trees, which are like described as being very sort of spongy and not like not sort of hard and 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 stuff like terrestrial trees so you can just like cut a little piece off and start chewing on it and not disagreeable although you can't swallow it there are animals it's furry giraffe like things and they eat lots of trees um, odd shaped mountains and then he sees he approaches another waterway and he sees this some kind of like i think it's described as like a fish or no like a seal almost and this creature appears to be speaking a language and 
Ransom, as a philologist, instantly recognizes that it is a language, even though yeah. obviously it has no terrestrial origin and he can't, yeah. you know, decipher anything, but he can tell that it's ordered speech patterns. They stare at each other for a while. After a bit, they start doing the basic communication thing, and he starts to learn about grammar and suffixes and prefixes. Yeah, this part was pretty cool, and there's definitely yeah. some similarities between this and Tolkien. I mean, you could tell they hung out with each other. Yeah, he took some of these words even, like, from Tolkien. Yeah. Tolkien was a little bit put out because he says he missed, like, he misused <laughs> them a little bit, but... Yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah. they were just friends doing their thing, so I don't know. I'm sure he wasn't that bothered, but and uh, yeah, so so he says they're on the Handramit, which is the lowlands. Harandra is the word for Earth, as in the element of Earth on Melacandra. And there's also the Harandra, which is the higher lands. Right. The beast or the Haros, as he soon discovers, is called, offers ransom a shell with liquid in it. And the creature added some, like, alcohol to the liquid in the shell. And Ransom really enjoys the drink. Yeah. It's like a boozy oyster shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They get into the Haras's boat. And the Uncanny Valley does bother him a little bit. Because he finds it... He has this, this interesting way of thinking about it. He's like, well, it's easier to start from animal and then add speech and reason rather right. than going the other way around. Right. Because that makes it seem uncanny and weird. So the Haras paddles out into a larger body of water and into a fast current. And Ransom is sick over the side and not enjoying the journey. And he learns that the Harasa live on the Handramit and the Sorn or Sironi live on the Harandra, which is the upper regions. And they get to the shore and uh, sort of join the village of the Haras. And he's hanging out with them and eating and drinking with them. And he soon begins to grow accustomed to Malacandra. He starts going for walks on his own and he has favorite foods and drinks. He knows the difference between the male and the female Hrosa and he enjoys the children's company. An old Hross named Nora begins teaching and instructing him in the language. They mostly eat vegetables, though they also eat a certain shellfish. They have poetry and music, which are performed publicly among the group and shared. And they want to know where he comes from. And he obviously thinks of them as like Stone Age or even pre-Stone Age primitives. So he starts to like talk about how he came from the sky. And they right. just kind of laugh at him. They're like, what do you mean you came from the sky? There's no air up there. You must have come from a planet. And evidently, they know more more about astronomy than he suspected. Yeah. So, yeah. and they start wondering if it's the silent planet Tholkandra that he came from. Yeah. They don't know why it's called that, but the Saroni would know. And this is a for refrain that comes up pretty often. Yeah. And the Saroni appear to know things. Tholkandra is one of the Dark Throne demos, and I always like that. Reading yeah. these books, catching metal references, like, oh, that's where that came from. I know, yeah. Uh, it was um, uh old friend Alfred from uh, Prince yeah, Edward right. Island who pointed that out to me way back in the day because he was really into this kind of stuff. And I never got to find out if he read A Voyage to Arcturus, but yeah, yeah. like he was the one that introduced me to Clark Ashton Smith and cool, yeah. stuff like that. So he's really into this. And it's kind of surprising, the, the Dark Throne reference, because I didn't, I don't know, uh, like I didn't think that they were into stuff like this so much. But yeah, apparently so. Yeah, apparently so. So they tell him that he should go see Oyarsa in Meldalorn. And Meldalorn is probably one of the most 
Tolkien sounding names in here. It just makes me think of like yeah. the El- Elven land or something like right. that. Right. But so none of the characters we meet are particularly Tolkienish. The uh, cross kind of struck me as like giant otter seals and you don't you don't really meet anybody like that in Tolkien. Um no, no. I mean, you meet various myth archetypes like elves and dwarves and, and yeah, things like right, that. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but it's mostly the word like the words, I guess, and the No, yeah. I mean, I I, I see what you mean with that, but I mean, the actual species and races we meet here are really quite different than what Tolkien had set up. Yeah, definitely. I think that Narnia is a bit more traditional fantasy, although it's certainly not as steeped in like mythology and world building as Lord of the Rings, but it's definitely a lot more of the traditional fantasy tropes are, are in those books. So, right. So the Oryarsa is described as sort of an old one who lives over all, and he's neither Rosa nor Saroni, nor is he Fipotrigi, which is the third intelligent, rational race that inhabits this planet, which we don't get to see till quite a bit later. But Yeah, I guess these were probably the most common with a Tolkien setup, is that they did remind me a lot of dwarves. We do get to see them. And even here, yes. they're commented on as being expert miners and craftsmen, and the cross-pass ransom a golden bowl that they had, I guess, carved, or however they do their metallurgy on the planet. Right. At first, Ransom thinks that because they keep referring to the Saroni as being the Sorms or Saroni as being very knowledgeable about things, he assumes that they're like the master race on this planet and that the Harasa are sort of Harasa are, are subordinate to them. Right. But the Harasa s- sort of laugh at this notion and they're like, well, what does the Saroni know about poetry and make- making boats and fishing and like stuff like that. I mean, they don't know anything about those things. We know about those things. And later on, he finds out, quite interestingly, that all the creatures on this world, they all speak the Hrasa language. And, I mean, they have their own tongues that they use to communicate with one another. But when they're speaking to other species, they all tend to, they all use the Hrasa language. And that seems to be because they are obviously the elocutors and they are the poets and they are the makers of songs and things like that. So it makes sense that that's the language they would speak. Yeah, Ransom is kind of naturally expecting an English-style class structure. Oh, yeah. And that's really not what he has at all. Right, exactly. It's interesting because this ties into a lot of Lewis's own thought about what might happen when people go out into space and how you might not recognize things that are very important to be recognized. And he also learns about the Mel-Eldil, who is sort of like the central spirit of all creation. And Oyarsa, who is like their ruler, did not create the world. He just runs it, it seems. And the Meleldil is this sort of great spirit. All that's sort of coming on, but he wants to know what would happen if the Saroni tried to force the Harasa to do things and uh, like exploit them. And it's difficult to even express in the language. So he's kind of thinking about what will happen when humanity you know, starts to spend more time here for instance. Yeah, that's one detail I liked here is the inability to express certain concepts in a foreign language. Right. Concepts that are unique to humanity and humanity's behavior and how on a different world society might play out in a different fashion where 
such an idea would never be encountered and thus there would be no word for that. Right, and how do you express things when there's no word for something? Right, exactly. And there's some interesting stuff coming up with that towards the end. So naturally they ask about Earth too and Shades of the Wells again, he wants to, he feels like he should be hiding things about humanity and what we're really like. And he remembers Cavor's fate when he talks right. to the Selenites. Yeah, again, directly mentioned by name. Yeah, he's, just, he's mentioned by name, which was cool. But he also says he's just shy, which is also kind of adorable. He's just like, he's just shy. He doesn't, he doesn't, he feels naked just talking about home and what it's like. And I think he's starting to really feel at home among the Hrosso. So yeah. describing things like what it's like in English society suddenly seems like not, I don't know, it's, it's maybe not quite seeming like it can compare, maybe. So the Hrosso start making poetry about Thelchondra now, and they're interested in the water beast thing he was running from, which is apparently called a Fnaka or something. And some of the names in the book are a little weird and hard to remember and say. And there's there's some parts where it's just like an outpouring of strange names, and, yeah, and it's yeah. the kind of thing that that people like who don't like science fiction like to point to about when they talk about how unreadable most science fiction is. It's like people right. just make up all these names, and they're like. It's not that bad, but there there were a couple of ports where like, all right, so there was an audiobook that I, I listened to part of this and I had to I found that I had to keep like stopping it because even like when I started to try and concentrate on anything other than listening, I was like, Wait, what did you just say? Yeah. I had to be reading it right. because there are certain parts where yeah, like he was just throwing names at you, you know, there's the Meleldil and there's the Oh, I haven't even mentioned yet the Eldila, which are invisible to Ransom anyway, but they're spirits that just kind of like hang out on Malachandra and talk to... Yeah, well, I think this is the time where he first hears of them. The reader sees them in the book. Yeah, they're about to go hunt the Hanaka beast, and here he encounters a girl who's talking to one. Right. But he doesn't see or hear who she's talking to, and she's very shocked when she learns that he can't see them or hear them. But he can, in fact, hear them if he's listening carefully, which turns out to be significant in a moment because his friend Hayoi, who is the first cross that he met, uh, takes him on his boat and they're going to go hunting this beast. And it's it reminded me of a whaling expedition. You know, yeah, just oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sitting in the boat with all these big spears and they're ready to chuck them at yeah. this massive beast. Like it sounds kind of dangerous and the Ross really enjoy it. It's like a major part of their culture. Yeah. Yeah, and there's interesting discussion of memory and like what it means to do things and how remembering is just the completion of the actual event and how when you do something and you've accomplished it, that's just the beginning of what that thing is. Right. And so it's an interesting different way of looking at the world that Ransom really finds that he likes. Again, he's talking to Hiyoi on their journey about things, and he brings up the concept of overpopulation, and he wonders what would happen if Malachandra ever became overpopulated. And that's how that whole discussion comes up, because Hiyoi says that they only spawn once, and then they remember it for always, and they never want to do it again, because, like... That's part of the joy of that moment is living it forever in your memory. Right. So to them, the whole concept that the world might become overrun by their respective kinds seems impossible. But Ransom asks Hiyoi to imagine a bent or crazy person writing a crazy poem. And it's a real mental stretch, but Hiyoi does say there are poems about, for example, one person who saw everything in two. And so he wanted two mates, and this is apparently a very unnatural state of being. He ransom marbles 
that the instincts of the Harasa so match the ideals of the man. So I think it's interesting. And I mean, again, we're starting to see kind of the religious face poking through, I think, in the text at this point, where it's like humanity is obviously a fallen species, whereas the Harasa are not. So like they are, they sort of have the innocence of children in the Garden of Eden or something like that, even though Malachandra is not that idyllic, because it turns out there was a great cataclysm on the planet a long time ago that rendered most of it inhospitable. And it is, in fact, older than Earth and and sort of dying. So it's not necessarily a paradise. But the creatures that live there are so directed by their motivations and their way of being that the the concepts that are so well known to humanity, like the greed and the desire for expansion and things like that, are, are unknown to them. But Ransom is really imbued with confidence. He wants to prove himself on the expedition. He wants to prove his Hana, which is sort of like the Harasa word for, I guess it's kind of like spirit or bravery, but it also is like the thing that all thinking creatures have. So I was a little bit unclear on what the Hana actually meant, but I, I, I guess I have a vague idea that it's sort of like, yeah, spirit, like spirit, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's linked with bravery and it's linked with like, honor i guess and things like that one might even say perhaps manliness but i don't necessarily mean that in a way that dismisses the female of the species but just in the sense of how people perceived it especially back then as somebody had to prove their manliness or prove their hana as the people of malachandra would say but he does hear an eldil at this point and it speaks and says that ransom shouldn't be there and he's being followed by weston and divine the bent men, or the bent hana, and he shouldn't be found anywhere except near the Hoyarsa on this island of Maldorn, and that's where he was supposed to go, and that's where he should be. Ransom is like, oh, can't it just wait? Can't we do this first? And he doesn't actually get a chance. They don't have a chance to debate it, because it's at that moment that the Hanakra beast shows up. They do kill it, and it's very victorious, and they all embrace, and they're very elated, and they go on shore, and Ransom feels like one of them, and everything's so happy. But then suddenly there's a sound of a rifle shot, and his friend Hiyoi is hit and falls down, dying. And Ransom is so devastated, and he like pours out his heart and begs for forgiveness. And it's horribly tragic. And yeah. like apparently they always do what the Aldila say, and they really should have sent him on his way a long time right. ago. Right. But Hiyoi tells Ransom not to worry. And he says, just be on your way. As he's in his dying breath, he says a word, which means like, Shnaka Slayer or something like that. And he's like saying that, in my eyes, you're a great man, even though Ransom essentially feels like he has been responsible for his friend's death now. But they tell him to go to this Tower of Augre, who is a sword. There's two routes they mention. He takes what appears to be the shorter route, which is the one to this tower as opposed to the like eight-day journey that involves passing through several different Harandramites and the upper regions where the Sorn live. And again, he starts, probably because he's alone and because he's going to see unknown something unknown, he starts to think again about all the sort of dark speculations about the nature of the hierarchy that he doesn't understand on this planet. He thinks about blood-stained idols and things like that. He ascends a steep mountain gradient, and the cold becomes bitingly intense and something's wrong with the air and the light he's now on the harandra the upper earth and there's not much oxygen in this atmosphere but 
he finds a cave and he's welcomed in by a sorn who calls him small one and he seems friendly enough and has knowledge of ransom's origin and speculates about it offering him oxygen to help him recover from a thin atmosphere and this is a tall feathered being kind of gawkishly grotesque but not so horrible after all ransom realizes they start talking about the nature of the oyoefsa and he was apparently put on malachandra when it was made and he doesn't die or breed and he's the only one of his kind but there are other oyarsa on other worlds and he seems sort of like an l like a superior eldeal i guess as the Sorn Ogre describes him. He attempts to describe their conception of physics in relation to the Eldila. It's very strange to terrestrials and our language, but it makes a sort of sense. Uh, the Eldila, they pass through matter that we consider solid, but they consider this matter to be porous and cloud-like. And the reverse is also true, I suppose. So they live in the heavens, the Eldila, but they talk to each other, and the Oyarsa can also speak to each other, but not to Thokandra, and they don't hear anything from Thokandra because it's the silent planet. And he shows them a window-like aperture that works kind of like a telescope. And there he sees what is unmistakably the Earth. Yep. And it's at last confirmed, I think, at this point, that he is on Mars. Right. And his host says he's going to carry him to Oyarsa, he gently criticizes the Harasa's lack of forethought because they didn't give him any way to... They didn't right. anticipate the problems he would face and that he wouldn't be able to breathe and so on. They know poetry and language. They don't know things about surviving in the mountains. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So on the journey, Ogri talks about another race that used to live upon the Harandra. They were a flying race of intelligent beings now gone from Alacandra. And they lived there when there was breathable, good atmosphere in the upper regions and verdant forests. But they stop at the home of another Sorn for the night, and this appears to be a scientist or scholar of some kind. Ransom sees scrolls, or books, and apparently there aren't many of these in Malacandra. It is better to remember, say the Sorns, and if something is forgotten, Oyarsa can bring it to light again. Now it's time for the questioning about Earth by the Sorns, and they are much more meticulous than the Harasa are. And Ransom decides to be as frank as possible, and it's of course very astonishing. They kind of marvel at the things you would expect and the kind of things that Wells brings up in First Men in the Moon again. And how, how humans are so obsessed with ownership, and they are so obsessed with conquest and so on. And one of a sword observes, it is because every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself. They kind of wonder at the energy expenditure that men put into carrying things and moving things around, and that also there's only one apparently intelligent species on Tholkandra. They also find that to be quite strange. Right. So the journey continues. They pass through another Hadramit and into a valley, and it's a grove of sorts. Meldalorn is a temperate forest realm. And uh, again, it struck me as being a bit Tolkienish oh, in the description yeah. of the yeah, like the landscape and stuff. There's a gong attached to a pillar which is struck with a hammer, and a boat comes from the lake, piloted by a horse. And Ransom offers his watch to Augury, but Augury sort of looks at it and he's like, "Well, the Fifotrigi would be more interested yeah. <laughs> in this because they build things." Right. So the Sorn are the intellects, the Fifotrigi are the builders, and the Horus are the poets and the sort of practical in the sense that yeah like they know how to catch food and they know how to live off the land and stuff and make artistic things and right 
songs, but so everything is quite stratified in a way. But there is no antagonism, which, which is kind of very unearth-like. Melden Lorne is full of Eldila. They're everywhere. And at this point, Ransom is sort of, he feels like he can see them. Like it's like lights that dance around, sort of. It's small and comfortable island, and it seems to have a number of visitors today. There's a whole lot of pictures engraved on stone, which are, the pictures are created by the Fifiltrigi, who are carving into the stone. And there's a model of the solar system with flaming figures around all the planets who are the Oyarsa, except for Earth, which seems to be cut out or erased, or that is its figure seems to be cut out. And he meets a fifth Otreg at this point, finally, who's going to create a portrait of him in stone. And they already have a picture of the spaceship depicted. And some of the images are very, very old, like they've been there for thousands of years, maintained over time by one would assume the Fiffle Triggy. Right. That is an interesting discussion. I wouldn't have minded spending a little more time with them and the sword, really. I mean, I get what Lewis was doing. I think that it, if he wanted to sort of win over Ransom to the idyllic nature that Malachandra could provide, the Hrasas were probably the best species for him to spend time with, I guess. Yeah, and for sure. It is quite yeah. a short book, so... No, it's it, yeah, it's less than half the word count of Arturus, I think, or around there. Yeah, probably, yeah. Oyarsa does finally summon Ransom to an audience, and again, he can almost see him, but not really. And he learns about the Oyarsa of Tholkandra, and how he seemed to go mad and power crazy, and became bent, which is the word that they always use in Malachandra to describe, like, insanity, essentially. Right. Something wrong. So there's very obvious parallels to Lucifer. In fact, it's, it's not even a parallel. It's a straight, like, allegory, pretty much. Yep. That obviously the Lightbringer is the Oyarsa of Earth, who became, who made war on the Meleldil, who is this, this like god spirit of the solar system, I guess, maybe the universe, and all the other Oyarsa of the different planets. Because, like humanity, this particular Oyarsa had the desire to expand and to attain more territory for itself. So he is the one that brought the cold to the Harandra, and there was war, and he was bound to the air of his own sphere. And that's why it is the Silent Planet. And that is also why it's the name of a Dark Throne demo, I assume. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oyarsa doesn't understand why everyone fears to come to him from Tholkandra. The first two divided Westham. They thought Ransom was needed to be eaten or as a sacrifice. And four years ago, Weston and Divine had come from Falcandra, and Oyarsa had tried to make it comfortable for them, and he tried to be kind, but insisted that someone go see Oyarsa now, and they wouldn't. And they probably didn't even understand what was being asked of them, though. And I, I actually thought that this, oh, this was a little bit unfair, <laughs> because there's a lot of, like, why didn't you come earlier kind of thing? And like, right. I don't know. I mean, I just don't. And again, it's it's kind of, this book was written not too long after Lewis's real conversion. And I just kind of wonder if like, this is kind of the author chastising almost himself for just being like, so reluctant at first. Yeah. It just seems like, why would, what reason would Ransom have had for understanding that this was so important? Right, right exactly. Yeah. I, I kind of wondered where the novel was going up to this point, and when it gets here, it's like, oh, okay, fine, that's where we're going with this. Yeah, but, yeah, and, and um, you said that when we were talking yeah. about it. And, uh, yeah, so, like, it's from this point on that you really can't ignore 
the yeah. essence of where you know. Yeah, this, this... I wouldn't say he really beats you over the head with it, but he makes it pretty obvious what he's trying to say here. Right. It is at this point that a procession shows up. It's Hirosa carrying burdens. They have some dead Hirosa with them and two human beings. There are three dead Hirosa, including Hiyoi, the one they shot. Weston and Divine shot, that is. And the two captive men are very blustery. It's quite comical. They think there's ventriloquism going on because they can hear <laughs> the Oyarsa speaking, but they can't yeah. see him. Right. And they both have very different attitudes about how to deal with it. Like, Divine is kind of like, oh, we should appease him. And West is like, no, oh, you know, we have to show our superiority. And he, right. like, starts shouting and saying, like, we'll kill you all. And uh, we are powerful men and we have weapons. And they're all just laughing at him. And Weston is definitely the louder of the two. Divine is a little bit cowed, actually. He's a little bit like, can we just take some gold and go home? Like, yeah. we won't bother you again. He's very timid at this point. But yeah. Weston is like... Definitely pushing the might is right struggle for existence type Oh, big time, yeah. yeah. So the Hirasa take him away, uh, Weston, and they like dump his head in cold water a whole bunch of times. And his hat falls off. And first they think like they broke his head somehow, but then, then he realized, oh, he's just wearing this funny thing on his head, I guess. Yeah. I was surprised his hat didn't fall off earlier, actually. But, <laughs> but Weston, yeah, he can barely speak the language. So, like, when he comes back and they have, like, almost like a trial in front of the Oyarsa, and at first, like, Weston's trying to speak for himself, but he sounds like the kind of primitive person that he's attempting to castigate. Like, he sounds like somebody who doesn't understand the language very well and is, like, just being a dumb brute, essentially, even though he's supposed to be this, like, learned scientist. So right. Ransom translates for him. Yeah. And there's some interesting difficulties of translation again and due to the incomparable concepts. Weston talks about conquest and the right of man and loyalty to man and his progeny is the most important thing to Weston. But Oyorsa kind of picks it apart as an absurd philosophy because it doesn't mean that Weston is respecting either mind or body, but the mere act of procreation itself. I don't know, it kind of reminded me of... It reminded me of this this book that I read once called The Iron Dream, which was like this book written by Norman Spinrad that was like a, a sort of an alternate history thought experiment on what if Adolf Hitler was a, a science fiction writer. Hmm. And so it talks about like Hitler as the character in his book, which he supposedly wrote, building an empire and ascending to the stars. And the book literally ends with this like giant phallic shaped rocket blasting off into space containing like the seed of the the Aryan race or something yeah. like that. And, and it's just like complete unbridled fascistic imperialistic right. like might is right kind of Yeah. yeah it's not even sure. like At least Lewis seems to be pretty critical of that here. I mean he makes them much more exaggerated villains than even Wells was doing. And of course we do have to remember that this book was published in 1938 and even though the atrocities of the Nazis were not really known in England at this time Certainly the shitty things that the party had already done and the rise of the German state and its imperialist ambitions was very right. well known. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I think this is pretty direct commentary and it's not an accident that in my head, you know, I linked it to, even though the, the Spinrad book was written in the 70s. Yeah. It's obvious that they're kind of thinking along the same lines here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Here, Weston really, like, because they, they start talking about the Oyarsa of Thokandra and what he was like. Weston actually very clearly identifies this with Satan in his mind. And he says, 
I think that he's right. I would be on his side. <laughs> and is very, very bald about it. Right. So he also tells Divine and Weston that they can leave Malacandra the next day. But there's a problem. The angle has changed and the distance is now much greater. So they'll need three months to undertake the journey. Fine, they'll have it. And also, Oyorsa has the ability to like dissolve matter. And this is actually what they do with the dead on Malacandra, it looks like. So that's why they did take the procession of uh, dead Horosa. They go to Oyorsa, and I guess he just sort of like dissolves them. And that's pretty neat. But he can also do that to, you know, living beings. And right. he talks about how he won't blast divine and weston out of existence because it's not his place because they are not his his creatures <laughs> right they belong to Thokandra, and so he is not within his rights to do that but if they were his he said he would probably destroy divine and he would try his best to cure weston so it seems like he does see a little bit of potential in weston probably because he is a learned person and he's maybe not beyond reason but Divine is just totally consumed by fear and greed, and he's like, there's no hope for him at all. He does this thing to the ship, which is essentially a bomb on the ship. It's, it's not described as a bomb, but it seems like it will go off after three months. And so if the ship has reached Earth, great, but there won't be a ship anymore. And if the ship hasn't reached Earth, well, too bad. I guess they're all dead. But yeah. he also says, though, that he will aid them for Ransom's sake, and he will have some Eldila going with them on the journey to make sure that Divine and Weston don't try to kill Ransom on the way and stuff. And now there's a narrator of this book who is pretty much Lewis. And even though like this book is not really a first-person narration, he does interject from time to time. So he says that Oyarsa and Ransom have a conversation, but he's not really allowed to record the extent of the details. It's a private conversation about the Earth. He is offered to stay in Malacandra, but uh, I think that Ransom, I guess he just decides that he wants to return home, which I don't know. I mean, it sets up the next couple of books, I guess. So, right. yeah, like, I mean, he's depressed once he gets home, but whatever. He decides to go home anyway. They go on the journey. It's pretty uneventful, although at one point they almost get sucked into the moon's gravitational pull. So it seems like... Right. They also have, like, extreme light heat. At one part, yeah, you know, this part it just kind of felt like off tonally as far as compared to what came before it. I mean, I guess I had to get back to her somehow, but yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of portrayed as a more harrowing journey because it's longer and because they start running out of air, the air's bad and they yeah. can't talk to each other, and it just sounds it sounds pretty hellish actually. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Once again, Ransom falls asleep before they land, right. so <laughs> he literally wakes up and he feels that it's raining. And Weston and Divine have fled like a bunch of scalded cats, and they're just gone. And they left him. If he happened to sleep through the dissolution of this, this ship, so be it. But it's, again, weird because, like, on their journey, they almost seem to be cool again. Like, not quite, but, I mean, it's like Ransom helps Weston and Divine, and eventually he kind of learns how to pilot a little bit. And they're, like, all helping each other and working as a team. And when they do talk, it seems reasonably cordial. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But they get home. Ransom gets out of the ship just in time because as he's walking away from it, 
he like feels a wind behind him and he looks back and there's no ship anymore. And I don't know where they are, but I'm assuming it's somewhere in England. That's what I thought too, yeah. Yeah. Very convenient. And he instantly goes into a pub and gets a pint of beer. Yeah. <laughs> Man after my own heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would do too. But yeah. months pass and Ransom even comes to doubt the truth of his journey. And Lewis writes him and he wants to know. He asks about some philological speculations. And here we get these weird links to like Oyorses or some something in a Latin text from the 12th century. Yeah, yeah. It's like talking about a journey into i guess it's like one of the old an old space journey or something through a dream or something right the voyage of the platonist yeah i didn't really look too deeply into that no but uh, it was an interesting reference it was sort of interesting but at the same time yeah like it was it seemed yeah i mean it, it was within lewis's own purview for sure oh yeah of, of his yeah, interests yeah so, uh, I mean, I know he would have known about this stuff. Yeah. So, And then they speculate about Weston a bit, and they seem to have uncovered some things, but they don't say what. More for the next book. And right. it's become vitally important to publish this work as fiction, apparently. It's not really elucidated as to why this is, but I guess like people like Weston are rising in the world. That or nobody would take it seriously if it was published as nonfiction. Yeah, but apparently they'll take it more seriously as fiction. I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some people might. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, people sometimes kill for Dungeons and Dragons, if you believe all the... Sure, uh, yeah, right. Anti-Dians. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And there's a postscript where Ransom writes to Lewis and talks about a lot of the things that he left out. Like, talks about the smells of Malacandra, and he's missing it. And he's homesick for Malacandra now. And he really enjoyed his time among the Harasa... And he relates lots of little details about them and biology and minute oddities. And it's it's weird because, like, it seems like all that stuff should have gone earlier in the book. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's I guess, sort of this nostalgic reminiscence at this point. Right. I, I didn't really get the positioning of this. It's like you said. No. Why not integrate this into the book prior? But No. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's an odd end. It is an odd ending, and it ends with a line, too, where he talks about the door being shut, which is like, as in, there's no spaceship now. So the door is now shut, and any space traveling will be done by looking at old books. So it will be time traveling as well. Right, yeah. And that's, that's kind of how it ends. That is very much Lewis speaking, because that is kind of how he thought about things. He thought that it was very important that, like, there was one woman who was apparently the first uh, American to write a dissertation on C.S. Lewis, and she had gone to see him, and they had talked about, like, the American educational institutions of universities and stuff, and how Lewis was like, well, the humanities are very different from the sciences, like, all this focus on 
research is missing the point and we should not be so concerned with adding to the field of knowledge but understanding the knowledge that we already have right he said many things about this and and connected with things like space travel he made a, a couple of sort of cogent but also a little bit i mean i i personally am somebody who sort of feels like we should journey into space and we should try to find out what's out there and try to maybe yeah i mean as long as we're not like conquering other races like use some of these things to help us and that's already been done i mean like a lot of the advances in engineering and stuff that have come from rocketry but also like discoveries about biology and space and stuff have have helped us out a lot so lewis was very interested in in challenging the 19th century evolutionary principles he saw himself as, as not a modern man. It's interesting, though, because through his challenge, like some of his attitudes were kind of progressive because at that time, evolutionary science was considered, it was considered like this hardline human biocentric human view of the universe and how might is right again and in its place to be superior. Yeah, exactly. This doesn't need Nazis to even make that connection. Certainly the British Empire had been operating on those principles for like 100 years or more. Yeah, definitely more. So, yeah. yeah. After the launch of Sputnik, in fact, because at this point it was starting to be realized that there probably weren't rational beings in the solar system. And he thought this was good. He said, This thought is welcome to me, because to be frank, I have no pleasure in looking forward to a meeting between humanity and any alien rational species. I observe how the white man has hitherto treated the black and how even among civilized men the stronger have treated the weaker. If we encounter in the depths of space a race, however innocent and amiable, which is technologically weaker than ourselves, I do not doubt that the same revolting story will be repeated. We shall enslave, deceive, exploit, or exterminate. At the very least, we shall corrupt it with our vices and infect it with our diseases. We are not yet fit to visit other worlds. We have filled our own with massacre, torture, syphilis, famine, dust bowls, and with all that is hideous to ear and eye, must we go to infect new realms? It's kind of odd that he mentions syphilis specifically, that <laughs> for me, but I get what he's getting at, I guess. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that sentiment definitely really comes through in this novel, too. Right. And again, another thing that he points out, which connects to what we were saying earlier about the differences that you might experience in cultures and so on, and, sure. and how people perceive things. He says in this essay, Religion and Rocketry, that he wrote, he supposes that we might encounter beings who are as spiritually bereft as us, which are fine and clever and intelligent, while misidentifying beings of spiritual purity who lack manufacturing and technology as, as animals. So I guess there is, again, this, this whole idea of potential misunderstandings and I right. mean, there's so many really cool first contact kind of stories where you see that stanislaw lem was really good at that i yeah. think was writing these like stories of of humanity encountering alien life that is way different than what we would assume or think to understand right and i mean i guess the way that the science fiction publication industry shifted from the time that Lindsay wrote Arcturus to Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet from 1920 to 1938. You do start to see a lot more of those first contact alien type stories in science fiction. Oh, yeah. Magazines, novels, uh, what have you. Right. Yeah, I said that Lindsay felt quite ahead of his time 
as far as anticipating a lot of stuff from the new wave, whereas this felt very early golden age. Mm-hmm. The nature of the hero of Ransom versus Maskell, even though they kind of have similar-ish arcs, felt like very, very different characters. Yeah. And the, the tones and I guess how they interact with the world are very different from one of them. Yeah, Maskell is, is harder and more like driven and kind of a weirdly intense kind of sardonic person, even though we don't really see much into either his interior life or his past. Whereas Ransom is way more like English, way more just seems like an affable chap. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And he may have been based somewhat on Tolkien. Yeah. And on his personality, in fact. But it's, this whole thing did feel very British. You said like, like it made you think of Doctor Who. And I mean, the, the William Hartnell era, definitely. In particular, I actually thought the novelization of the first Dalek story, the Daleks, which was like the first yeah. ever right. story to be novelized. And in that story, like in the, the novel anyway, the two school teachers is kind of similar to the Western divine kidnapping of Ransom. Although he doesn't want to use them as a sacrifice or anything like yeah. that. But, uh, but it starts off in a, in a way that I thought was very similar. And the way like he and the male school teacher sort of wakes up in the TARDIS and like just explaining, oh, we've gone very far beyond your hope now. And right. It's just like it's it's yeah. It, it was definitely had that feeling, and then yeah, the early chapters had that sort of Avengers vibe where everybody was like right. being sort of cool and playfully sort of hospitable to each other. But there was this like undercurrent of enmity. Yeah. It's like, like so weird. He obviously didn't like Divine, and Divine didn't like him. But he's like, oh yeah, I'll still take a drink from him, and yeah, I'll right. still <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no, it, it did remind me a bit of elements from the Daleks and Mission to the Unknown landing on these strange planets and kind of voyaging through them. I mean, it was kind of superficial comparisons on the surface, but it did remind me of it, how they were presenting the situation and how the mm-hmm. characters were interacting with the environment. Again, yeah, very British. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as well as Dark Throne, a couple of other rock bands have definitely been influenced by this. The band King's X and Iron Maiden both have albums uh, and or songs named after this. With Iron Maiden, it's a song. At King's X, it's a whole album. But oh, really? It's a I con- concept album or anything, huh. but yeah. And King's X are known as a Christian band. So, yeah, no, definitely. I never really listened uh, to them. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they made not so much, but a little bit. Like, yeah. you know, they, they have <laughs> that theme in a little bit of their stuff, especially later on. That's not a very good song, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked this. Yeah, I did too. I, I think the ending was a bit weaker than Arcturus. And once I saw that that was where Lewis was going with it, I, was, I wouldn't say I lost interest, but it knocked it down a little bit for me. Whereas Arcturus, I was totally engaged with. Until the yeah. very end, and I really liked how he ended it. Whereas I thought the ending was just okay. I thought the voyage back to Earth kind of sucked a little bit of the air out of the narrative, and the postscript, as we mentioned, was just kind of weird. I, I just didn't get the placement of that. But yeah, overall, I, I liked it. I think that Lewis has a good voice for this kind of narrative story. The linguistic stuffs were cool. I really liked how he depicted the planet of know full of this weird lush vegetation and stuff right i wouldn't have minded if this was longer like just because i mean i thought it was kind of a shame how weston and divine vanish like yeah you, know, you never see them again till the end when they meet right. up with Oyarsa. like 
I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of wanted to, I wanted that debate to be treated a little bit more seriously. Like, it's kind of fun the way it pans out because there is a certain comical aspect to it. And I can, obviously, Lewis was lampooning the attitudes of people like Weston, especially. Like, sure, Weston course, is, yeah. is such a hypocrite. Like, yeah. he obviously has no time for, like, or even respect the validity of moral questions. And he adapts this, like, the utilitarian concept of life, but he still can't help but think of it with, like, grandiosity. And he uses the pronoun she to describe it. You know, like, it's it's got some value above itself. But at the same time, he won't respect individual life, and he won't. It's it's just... <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's very hypocritical. But I would like... I don't know. I mean, I... It's obvious that Lewis took it somewhat seriously, so maybe the book could take it somewhat seriously a little right. bit, too. I mean, it's just... I know we see that in a lot of other science fiction works, but it would have been nice to see Lewis's take on it. And, I mean, he does get into it, I think, a little bit in the next books, but, like, they are different books. Like, they're not... It's not a continuation of the same story or anything exactly. Paralandra takes place on Venus, and at that point, there is no spaceship. I think they're just actually, like, spiritually transported there. And it's very much more on the, like spiritual like it plays around a lot with the adam and eve myth mars malachandra is depicted as an old sort of dying world but venus is a young world that hasn't yet experienced the fall and so weston is literally the representation of lucifer tempting eve into the fall and so weston and ransom both end up journeying to paralandra which is venus and there's this sort of like spiritual battle that takes place. Mm. And uh, in the third book, it takes place on Earth. I haven't read the third book. And uh, Paralandra, I read many, many years ago. So my memory of it's not so yeah. hot. <laughs> I was pretty young and I think I missed a lot of it. So, Well, perhaps we'll revisit them in the future. I'm not sure if we're going to come back to Lindsay during the yeah, podcast. But Lewis is certainly so. a repeat contender. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason not to come back to Lindsay is more just that, yeah, like it would be a bonus thing. If we did like Haunted Women or Devil's Tour, because there's right. really not a lot of, there's not a lot of content that really links to anything that we're doing. Even with the other Lewis, I would say it's it's debatable, but I wouldn't mind. It would be kind of cool to maybe visit those at some point in the future. Yeah, we'll see. That Hideous Strength is the third book, and it takes place on Earth. It has a bit more of a dystopian feel. At this point, Divine is actually running a some kind of, I guess. I don't know, some kind of like community or something like that, or an organization that's given the name NICE, which is kind of amusing. Right. But it's like obviously not very nice. Yeah. And Ransom has to stop him. And apparently he calls some of the ancient British traditions into play to do so, like King Arthur himself. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, that book sounds like kind of fun. I haven't actually read that one. Many people do seem to think that it's the weakest of the three, but I'd still like to maybe find out someday. Yeah. So, yeah, that is Out of the Silent Planet, and what a journey it's been tonight. We have gone to some, quite some places. Yeah, and, very uh, fantastic places, and these were both good books. I, I can recommend them both, even though I liked Arcturus much more than the Lewis. These were both good. I can see people enjoying Lewis more if there is a certain mindset. Like, it is, I don't want to say a simpler story, because it's not exactly, but it's just more like... In line with your typical science fiction adventure. Yeah. yeah. Now, once they get to the Oyarsa, like, I think that's where, even though I enjoy the Western 
divine ransom debate with the Oyarsa and stuff. Like, I yeah. liked that part. I didn't think enough was made of it. And, like, once he had this, like, godlike being there ready to sort of protect him, just sort of reprimanding him for being a little bit fearful, but it's, like, gently chiding. Yeah. It was very much like Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia, uh-huh. who's the lion godlike being who, who essentially, I guess, runs Narnia. And it turns out that even the other creatures who are sort of like the enemies in the book or the, the various man tribes that are like these people called the Kalormans or something. They are like, they worship a different god, but it turns out to be the same one in the end. Mm. And it's all like Aslan. Aslan is a very, like, is, is considered to be a substitution for our Yahweh or God. I think that the Oyarsa is, is sort of the same thing in principle. It, it definitely seems that way, yeah. Something that's very important to to Lewis for obvious reasons. Sure, these books are are well regarded. They're definitely read extensively, like not just in the science fiction community, but in the Christian community as well. So, mm-hmm. possibly even more so. I mean, Brian Aldiss does talk about these books a little bit in his Trillion Year Spree, which makes sense because, I mean, he he definitely covers a bunch of the British writers. He wasn't a fan of that hideous strength, but he does spend a bit of time talking about this book and its importance so well unless uh you have anything else to add about this one i think i'm about talked out for the night yeah no i'm i'm good <laughs> yeah. you want to see what we have for next time yeah so next time we have decided uh we're going to do sort of the same sort of thing that we did on our episode four although i am starting to be worried that we might have to split that one up in different chunks too but we're going to cover a whole bunch of short stories because short stories are very much the essence of our genre, kind of, I think. Uh, yeah. And that, that a lot of what science fiction is comes from the short story. And I think that there's various reasons behind that that maybe we'll get into next time. But we're doing a whole bunch of stories. We are going to be covering... Oh, boy, where do we even start? We're going to be covering The Repair of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. In addition to The Repair of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers... We're going to be covering Nilo Maria Fabra, and he wrote in both Spanish and Catalan, but this story is written in Spanish. It's Titan the Proud from 1895. Clarine, whose real name was Leopoldo Alas, who wrote a story called Future Story from 1893, as well as Miguel de Unamuno, who wrote a story called Mechanopolis from 1913. A story called Runaway Cyclone, from Jagadish Chandra Bose, who was an Indian author and radio pioneer. We are going to be reading When the Green Star Waned by... I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. Yeah, I, I'm, I've wondered about this too. Uh, Nixon Dialis. Yeah, something Dialis. like that. Or D- yeah. Nixon Dialis. Yeah. This one seems like uh, it's going to be really I asked a couple of people and they didn't really know how to pronounce it either, <laughs> yeah. so... Yeah. Yeah. American author, I guess. Uh, he's American, yes. Yeah. Uh, his, his first name seems to come from some. His father was apparently really into Aztec stuff. Right. It, it does look that way, yeah. Yeah. And his last name is looks like it's of Welsh origin. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We'll also be reading Tornadres by J.H. Rosny, who's a Belgian author, and Professor Bakerman's Microbe by Charles Ether, French author. Harriet Prescott Spofford's The Ray of Displacement. L.T. Meade and Robert Eustace's Where the Air Quivered. Oh, uh, yes. The detective story. Yeah. Yeah. So quite a bit of stories. Uh, we're doing 10 
next time. We did 10 in episode 4, so should be a pretty full and interesting episode. Yeah, and we encourage everyone to try and read as many of these stories as they can before we discuss them. And hopefully you all enjoyed this sojourn into Tormans and Malacandra. You can find us on the internet in various places, on Facebook, at Chrononauts Podcast, on Blogspot. And of course, there we will have translations of various works as they come. Yep, we should be posting some text, not for the next episode, but a very early, very rare airplane novel for the episode after that. So yeah, keep an eye out for that one. Yeah, I think we'll probably squeeze a bonus episode in after the short stories, just sort of reflecting yeah. on where we've been and stuff since the last time, because it's been a good long while since we did anything like that. So it'll probably just be a short episode where we muse about stuff and ramble on a bit uh, mm-hmm. more than we, you know, <laughs> in a more general way than we usually do. Right, anyway. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it should be a good episode next time, so we hope to see you all there. Yes, in the meantime, keep your heart and your eyes peeled toward Muspel, and remember to respect the creeds of life and all the El Dila around you, and we will see you next time. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.